morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this fourth gospel. And right now we're working our way through chapter 6. And chapter 6 starts with the words, after these things. Meaning, this is a break from chapter 5. It's a new section. But if you look at chapter 5, it starts by saying, after these things. Which means that chapter 5 is giving us a break from 4. So chapter 5 is a unit. And and hopefully we discovered that as we we looked at that. And chapter 6 is a unit. And we're going to see as we get to chapter 7 again, it says after these things. These are indicators that we pass out of one unit, one section of instruction, and we're moving to another. So chapter 5 was a unit where if you remember, Yeshua healed a man... On the Sabbath, that was not an accident. That was purposeful. They got mad because he healed on the Sabbath. And he said to them, my father works on the Sabbath and so do I. And they said, you are claiming to be God. And he said, you got it. You're absolutely right. And for the rest of the chapter, he gave a discourse on the fact that he and the father are one. He wanted them to get that. Very clear. Well, in chapter 6, we have a similar situation. You know, it starts out, this is a new section, and he, he, he has, remember in chapter 6, he is tired. The disciples are tired. They've been out on their, on their mission, and they're wore out, so the Lord says, we need to get a little time away. One of the Gospels, I think it's Mark, says they didn't even have time to eat. Alright, they got no time. So he says, let's go to this other side of the Lake of Galilee. It's a desolate side. Let's have some R&R. Well, you know the story, they get there where the crowds followed them. Crowds get there ahead of them. So they get there and they're swamped by the crowds and they don't get a chance to eat there either. So the the Lord spends the day healing the sick. They're watching all this. At the end of the day, it comes and they say, we need to send these people away because how are we going to feed them? And the Lord, you know, does the miracle and feeds 20,000 people with some bread and a few fish. And then, after the miracle, again, He launches into this teaching on the bread of life. It's just, gives the, te- gives the miracle, get their attention, then teaches them what this is all about. Now some commentators have divided up the three years of Christ's public ministry, calling the first year the year of inauguration. The second year, the year of popularity. And the third year, the year of opposition. Well in chapter 6, we see the peak of Christ's popularity. I mean, this is it. He's at the top here. It says, Yeshua perceiving that they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king. Hey, the popularity is so high, they said, we need to make you king. We want a king like you. You're exactly what we want. And so they want to make Him king. But as we go on in this chapter, and the Lord continues to teach the people, their view changes very quickly. And in 666, It says, as a result of this, many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. Now you notice the 666 there. And it just happens to be a verse about His disciples departing. They depart, they're not going to walk with Him anymore. So, chapter 6 is a major turning point in the Lord's ministry. He's going from the height of popularity to the opposition phase where people are coming against Him because they don't like what He's saying. So, so far in this chapter... And you know, it's these chapters are units, and we need to see them as a unit. And I can't preach the whole thing at one section because we'd be here all day, all right? So, and I can't feed twenty thousand. So, you know, we're we're just going to break it up. But I want you to try to keep the section together. And so far, we've seen in this chapter that he's most likely fed over twenty thousand people with five barley loaves and two fish. And this caused the people to say, "This is a great prophet that you're coming to the world." I mean, the view of the crowd here was that that miracle is so great, we're convinced this must be the prophet that Moses talked about. The prophet that was to come. And remember, at this time, messianic expectations are running very high. That the Passover was near. He told us that in the beginning of the chapter. And it's just a time of high expectations waiting for their Messiah. And doing this miracle, feeding all these people, just kind of flames the fire for that messianic enthusiasm. 
You know, Moses had provided military leadership for the Israelites. He liberated them from the oppression of the Egyptians. And so the Jews concluded that Yeshua can do the same thing for us. So they now sought to secure his political leadership by force. (laughs) We will make you be our king. So Yeshua, after he feeds the 20,000, remember, Mark tells us this, he feeds them immediately, Mark says, that's one of Mark's favorite words, he puts the disciples in the boat and sends them out. Immediately, it's like, wait, you know, eat and run? We don't even get a chance to, you know, hang around? He was afraid that his disciples were going to get caught up in this messianic, let's make Yeshua king mentality. So he said, before they get caught up in that, get in the boat and get out of here. He goes up in the mountain to pray. Dismisses the crowds. Well, later that night, from his mountain top where he's praying, he sees the disciples in the midst of this great storm struggling. They're not making any headway. They're out in the middle of the lake and they're not going anywhere. So he sees them so... He walks out on the water, and we have this teleporting miracle where he gets on the boat, and all of a sudden the boat's where it was going. It's at Capernaum. And then the rest of the chapter is a discourse on the bread of life. So, you know, a lot of people wonder, why this miracle walking on the water and teleporting? What's that even doing there? And I tried to explain to you last week that that's a private miracle, specifically for the disciples, because they still didn't get it. Okay, they're like the rest of the people, they don't get it. Look what Mark says in 652. For they had not yet gained any insight into the incident of the loaves. They didn't get it. He feeds all these people and they're like, wow, that's really cool. They didn't get it. But their heart was hardened. In spite of all that Yeshua had done earlier that day, healing the sick, feeding 20,000 people, literally creating food, it didn't do it for the disciples. They just didn't get it. So Yeshua gives them a private miracle because He wanted them to know who He was. He was the great I Am. And they come walking, He comes walking on the water and He says to them, I Am. And they knew what that meant. He's identifying Himself as Yahweh. So the disciples are out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in the midst of this storm, fighting for their lives. And along comes Yeshua walking on the water. He gets in the boat. Suddenly the storm stops dead. And they turn around and they're at Copernicum. They're like, whoa, that ought to have got their attention, I would think. Okay? That got their attention. And then that's the reason for that miracle being stuck in there. He wants them to get it. Verse 21, he says, They were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is a teleporting miracle. This is a miracle that defied the observable laws of space and time. And what did it have on the disciples? What kind of effect did this have? Did this get their attention? Well, Matthew says, and they worshipped Him. Now, maybe in our culture that's not a big deal, but these disciples are monolithic Jews. They worship only Yahweh. And here they are worshipping Yeshua, so I think they finally get it. They understand that He is Yahweh in the flesh. And they worship Him. So this is for their benefit. They get it. All right, that brings us down to verse 22 to 25, which really are a transition. You read these verses and you're like, wow, this is kind of weird stuff in these couple verses here. But it's a transition. He's moving for into the discourse on the bread of life. And the purpose of these verses is basically to get everybody back in one spot at Copernicum. All right? And make it clear also that Yeshua arrived on the other side by miraculous means. He wants them all to get that. This is, yeah, you heard right. He walked on the water, he teleported the boat. He wants them to understand this. So verse 22 says, The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one. And that Yeshua had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now, the next day, that's after the feeding of the 20,000. It says, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea. That's the other side from where Yeshua is now at Copernicum. They're on the other side. They're back in the original. The crowd's still over here where He fed them. Where the feeding took place. And Yeshua and His disciples are up here at Copernicum. 
There's only one boat there. And they know that Yeshua hadn't gone with the disciples. So they're like, He's got to be here. He went up in the mountain. You know, they're down on the pathway around the lake. So he had to come down and go around that lake if he walked. And they know he didn't do that. And they know he didn't take a boat. So they're like, well, he must still be here. They think he's still over there somewhere. All right. So it's and it says, there came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate the bread and the Lord had given thanks. Alright, so the city of Tiberias is located on the western shore of the sea and Copernicum is up there in the northwest side of the sea. So here come some boats from Tiberias to the location of Christ's miracle. So they get in a boat and they're coming over here. What brought them over there? Most likely... After he fed these 20,000 people, he dismissed them. He went up to pray. The disciples left. Some of them probably went home. And I think the story spread around this lake pretty fast that there's a guy over here feeding everybody. Okay? I mean, this could be the Messiah. So they're all excited. So people from Tiberias get in the boats and they go over there. Now, I read some commentators and they say, well, what happened was the people of Tiberias knew all those people over there eating and they had to get out. So they went over there to make some money by Ubering them back, you know, to where they belong. I, I don't know. That, you know, that's kind of a stretch to me. I think it's more about what's going on with Yeshua than these people, you know, in their boat saying, we can make some money here. We'll ferry these people across, you know, because they really didn't understand all that was happening right there. So when the crowd saw that Yeshua was not there, where the miracle took place, you know, they finally realized he's not here. His disciples are not here. They themselves got into the small boats that came from Tiberias, and came to Copernicum seeking Yeshua. All right, eventually the crowd realized he's not here. And so they board the small boats that had come from Tiberias, and they set out for Copernicum. So they're having them ferry them up there. And they probably thought, you know, you say, why did they go to Copernicum? How did they know he was there? That was his headquarters. That was the headquarters that Yeshua had set up for his ministry. And so they knew he was teaching there, so they said, let's go there. Now, I want you to notice what the text says. The crowd is seeking Yeshua. All right? They're looking for Him. They want Him. The next verse says, When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you get here? You know, you read these verses, and you got to kind of scratch your head and say, why does Lazarus put in these verses? They just don't seem to have a lot of importance here. Not a lot of doctrine here, but I think there's several reasons they included this. He may have given us this information to document the fact that Yeshua really had crossed the lake by walking on the water. Because he's making it clear, how do you get here? There's no, you know, you didn't walk, we know you didn't. There wasn't a boat. What happened? You know, tell us what happened here. And so he's kind of making it clear that, you know, there was a miracle took place here. And in view of what these people proceed to demand later in this text, these people say, show us a sign. Well, it's important for Lazarus to show us that the people who had witnessed the very miracle of the feeding were the people that were later saying, do a sign for us. And we'll believe in you. If you just do something. They're like, uh, you saw a sign already. All right? According to verse 59, this discussion that took place over here, this dialogue, at least some of it, we don't know how much, it took place in the synagogue at Capernaum. All right, 59 says that these things he said in the synagogue as he taught. So maybe all this dialogue took place in the synagogue. Maybe some of it, it doesn't really give us a transition to know. It would make sense that they got there, especially if it's a Sabbath. You know, they'd go to the synagogue because they knew that's where Yeshua would be. So they go there and you can take, they dialogue in the synagogue. You can ask questions. So maybe this is where it all took place. Well, when they finally find Yeshua, they ask him, Rabbi? When did you get here? Now, it's like, you want, they want to know what time, right? What time was it when you got here? Because we just got here, and how'd you get here? You know. Well, here's the interesting thing. In the Greek, this implies a double question of when and how. Okay? In other words, how did you get here? We know you didn't walk past us, and we know there wasn't a boat, so how'd you get here? So Yeshua says to them, Oh, guys, I was up on the mountain praying, and I saw my disciples struggling out there in the water, so I just walked across it. And I got in, there's a big storm going on, so I just said, stop, and the storm stopped instantly, and I teleported the boat over here to Copernicum. 
No, he didn't say that at all. He doesn't answer their question. He didn't answer. He didn't tell them. But I want you to see that they thought something was up because how did you get here? How did it happen? Remember, those miracles were specifically for the disciples, so he didn't go into that with these people. When did you come here? Now, remember our author here, John Eliezer, Lazarus, uses very often double meanings to a lot of the things he says. And this can be taken in two ways in this gospel. And I think the surface meaning here is simple. It's an inquiry about the crowd's awareness that Yeshua had not left the other side in a boat. So they're like, how'd you get here? We know you didn't take a boat. So the question is both when and how Yeshua got back to Copernicum. How did he get on that side? But the question may also arise the issue of Yeshua's origin. You know, they're aware something's going on here. You're feeding all these people. We saw you do these miracles. How did you get here? You know, where are you from is kind of the idea that I think that may be an underlying question here. Well, verse 26 says, Yeshua answered them, and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the sign, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Yeshua answered him. No, he really didn't. Okay? This is more of a response to the question. He's responding to their question, but he's not answering. He doesn't tell them how he got there. He doesn't tell them when he got there. He just goes into this and he says, Truly, truly, I say unto you. Now, we talked about this before. This is the eighth use of the double amen here. And he uses this to emphasize critical statements. In other words, this is not casual conversation going on. Well, they ask him a question. Oh, let me tell you. No, he said, I got to get your attention. Truly, truly, this is important. You've got to understand this. this. This points to a very important declaration that he's going to make, a revelation from God. Yeshua says, you seek me not because you saw the signs. All right. It's clear that they were seeking him. All right. They, they, but it wasn't because they saw him feed all those people. It wasn't because they saw him, you know, healing the sick. But the very purpose of the signs, the miracles that Yeshua was doing, was to demonstrate that he was from God. That was the purpose. Notice what Peter said on the day of Pentecost to a group of Jews gathered there. He said, Men of Israel, Listen to these words. Yeshua the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. What he's saying, the primary purpose of Yeshua's miracles were not to alleviate suffering, to fix distress. They were to prove that he was from God. In other words, you see someone do some of these things, you go, that's not a normal man. These were signs of the presence of the promised Messiah. He was fulfilling things promised in the Scripture that the Messiah would do. So his life was proof. It was a proclamation that God was with him. So the evidence is in. It's it's too clear to miss this. You don't feed 20,000 people with a couple fish and a few loaves of bread and have all those leftovers. You don't do it. And these miracles are crucial to Lazarus' purpose because He writes that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ and believing you might have life in His name. He gave these signs so you would see He's the Christ. They're seeing the signs and they're not getting it. So the miracles are to demonstrate He's the Son of God. There's no other explanation for this power. And remember, the whole time He's claiming to be what? God. You're right, I'm equal with God. Look at this. Who does this kind of stuff? But this crowd wasn't seeking Christ because they saw the miracles and realized this is Yahweh in the flesh, the God of all creation. That wasn't why they were following. Yeshua says, you seek me because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So he's telling them, here's your motive. And once again, this knowledge implies a supernatural knowledge on Yeshua's part. He knew what their motives were. He knew why they were seeking Him. He tells them, you know, you're not here Because you realize that all the signs point to me as the Savior, the Messiah. You're here because you want another meal. You're here because you ate and you were full. These people are the initial members of the health wealth gospel. Okay? Their belief was Yeshua wants you full. Okay? A chicken in every pot. Okay? 
He wants us all to be full. Their, that was their belief. Listen, life in their day was hard. They didn't have food like we had. They had to plan far ahead. They had to work hard to get their food. And can you imagine? This is cool. Messiah showing up. Guess what? We don't have to work so hard for food anymore. It's just join the welfare line and it's there. Okay? Now remember, this. we're going to get into this. This dialogue connects with Moses. Forty years. What they have to do for their food? Just go out in the morning, pick it up. It's there because the Lord provided for it. Manna. Well, they saw this miracle and they're like, "Hey, this I like this idea." Okay, free food. All right, free food. They sought Yeshua only for what He could do for them physically and materially. And this is basically the same teaching of the health wealth gospel today. God wants every Christian perfectly healthy. He doesn't want you to be sick. He wants you wealthy. He doesn't want you to have to struggle. And if you just give your money to me, I will be wealthy. Okay? And that's how the teachers work it, you know? And I'll be your example. And it's all seed money because what you give me, then God will just bless you. You'll be so blessed. It works for the people at the top. It's a pyramid scheme. Okay? But it's a system built on preying on people's greed. Come to Yeshua because guess what? You'll never be sick and you'll have all the money you need. Well, that's a great deal. Who wouldn't sign up for that? And that's why so many of these churches are packed. That's a great deal. You know, and you hear all these messages. Oh, your marriage bad? Come to Yeshua. Is this bad? Oh, you're struggling at your job? Come to Yeshua. Like what? He's just the fix-it man for all your bad? No, come to Him because He's the Lord of the universe, the God of all creation. He will give you eternal life. You won't die and spend eternity apart from Him. You're a sinner who needs Him. That's why you come to Christ. Not the Easter bunny. The word that's translated here is filled is the Greek word kortadzo. And it mean, it was used of animals who were foddered. It has the idea of to gorge. Remember we talked about that. These people had, I mean, they ate all they wanted. The Scripture said they were filled. Okay? It wasn't like, oh, we got to share this little bit of cracker. Take one bite, you know. No, they eat all you want. Eat till you're full. They were filled. And Yeshua says, you're seeking me because you ate the bread, you ate the fish, and you were gorged. You were full. That's why you come to me. So instead of seeing the bread as a sign and the authority of the deity of Christ, they see it as a free lunch. Hey, this guy, who's not going to follow this guy? Okay? It's a free lunch. Everybody wants a free lunch. You know, in this town, being a military town, when it's Veterans Day, a lot of the restaurants give free food to the veterans. That's the last place I go that day. Okay? First of all, I can afford my own food. I don't have to go there and fight 10,000 people to try to get a free lunch. It is amazing what people will do for something free. I remember being totally amazed. I was at the auction one day. I used to go to auto auctions all the time, buy cars. And the dealer would always stand up there with the auctioneer, you know, prompting the auctioneer to get Well, the dealers would have wads of cash. Sometimes, you know, they're trying to get a crowd. These are their cars. So they want everybody at this auction station. So they're throwing $1 bills out like this. People are literally diving on the floor. And I'm like, that's a dollar bill. Do you realize that? It's not hundreds. It's a dollar. And these guys are knocking each other out of the way and flying across the car to grab a dollar. And I'm thinking, the greed of the human heart is just crazy. Well, this, you know, that's why they're following. This is a free lunch. Hey, we're going to seek this guy out. We want to be where he's at because he's providing some food. Listen, here's the real scenario, people. They're face to face with Yahweh. Face to face with the God who created them and the whole world. And what they want is a fish sandwich. I mean, this is distorted. And this is a good illustration of what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man, and that sukkakos there, means the man without the Spirit of God. He's just a natural man. He doesn't have God's Spirit. Does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> you ever tried to share the Gospel with people and they're like, what? That's ridiculous. They're foolishness to them. And that's why people laugh at Christians. That's foolish. Well, to you, because you're a natural man. They cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So the natural man, the man without the Spirit cannot, not will not, cannot 
understand them. They don't get it. It's like, we people are just weird. Why do you believe this stuff? Because we have a new heart. We're not natural men. We're spiritual men. As we saw earlier in Mark, even the twelve disciples didn't get it. They had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves because their heart was hardened. They just didn't get it. Their eyes weren't open yet. Natural man without the Spirit doesn't get it. They just can't get it. And that's important. We're going to see that later in this text very clearly. All right, you should say to these people, they're expending a lot of energy tracking him down. First on one side of the Sea of Galilee, then they get the boats, they go to the other side, they want to find him. Why? Because they had eaten and were full. They, the product of the miracle had satisfied them, and they gave no thought to the person who performed the miracle. You know, you got to stop and ask, how did he do that? What kind of man is this? Remember, the disciples did that at one point when he calmed the storm. What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? you got to ask those questions, all right? You see this going on. Well, after exposing their wrong motive, Yeshua tells them, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. All right. I love this, people, because listen to you, you know, there's got to be people, I haven't found them, but I know there's, if you looked online, I'm sure you'd find some people who teach, we don't need to work because Yeshua says, don't work for food that perishes. Okay? So we could tear this text out of its context and say, Yeshua taught that if we're spiritual enough, we don't need to worry about providing for our own needs. Now, you might think that's a stretch, but I've known people like this. I've literally had conversations with men who says, I don't have to work, God will provide. I'm like, He provides through work. No, He'll send me a check. I'm like, will you? Let me know if you get it. Signed the bank of heaven, you know. I'm not sure how that works out, you know. But listen, Yeshua is not saying, quit your job, I'll take care of you. We know, how do we know that's not what He's saying here? Because we compare Scripture with Scripture and the whole rest of the New Testament He teaches, work is not only honorable, it's mandated, Okay? Look at Ephesians 4.28. He who steals must steal no longer. Why do people steal? Because they get other people's stuff, okay? And it's easier to take someone else's stuff than work. Now see, if you're you're fortunate enough to live in America, you don't really have to do this because the government will steal from people and give to you, okay? But rather, he says, he must labor. The word labor means Really hard work or toil. It's a word that has the idea of working to the point of exhaustion. Work was highly valued in the Tanakh. It was highly valued among Judaism. He says, performing with his own hands what is good. This is interesting. You know, don't steal, but work. Why should you work? So you'll have something to share with those who have need. Wow. It's not like, you know, you expect him to say, but work so you can provide for your own stuff. No, work so you can have stuff to help other people out. And it's not supposed to be mandated that we help other people out. It's mandated by the Lord, not by anybody else, okay? Biblically, what happens when someone refuses to work? What's the biblical cure for laziness? Hunger, okay? 2 Thessalonians 3.10 For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, He's not to eat. People, that works every time. Hunger is a cure for laziness. Eventually, you're going to get to the point where this is really bad. i got to do something. Get up and get a job. Get up and get a job. Where to work. Men are to provide for their families through labor. Now, in the context of caring for widows, Timothy writes this, but if anyone does not provide for his own, referring to his own family, Especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You don't provide for your family saying, you're denying the very faith you say you believe in. Because your job is to provide for your family. By honest labor, that's what you're to do. So he says, don't work for the food that perishes. When Yeshua tells the people this, he's rebuking their purely materialistic notions about the kingdom. You're all in it for materialism, perishing stuff. It's just like the woman at the well when, you know, Yeshua was talking to her and he's talking about spiritual water and she goes, well, ever give me this water. Why? So I don't have to come to this well anymore. It's a long walk. It's a lot of of work. See, he didn't get it. 
They didn't get the spiritual level. He says, you're working for things that perish. You know, you're here for the free lunch. Now, do not work is a present middle imperative with the negative participle, which usually means stop an, ag- an action that's already in progress. He's saying something like this, stop working for food that perishes. Stop it. That's all you use seeking me because I fed you. Seek instead the food that remains to eternal life. The food that I'll give you. So he's contrasting the physical and the spiritual here. Work for that which endures to eternal life. Endures is the Greek word mano. This is one of uh, John Eliezer's favorite words here to describe the food, food which the Son of Man will give. He uses this word mano all over again. It's, the, it's usually translated abide. That which abides. That which remains. Well, what does Yeshua mean to work for the food that endures to eternal life? Now, this is important here. I want to give you a quote from a commentator on this verse. But I need you to think here with me, okay? I want you to think, first of all, about the context. All right, J.C. Ryle, commenting on these verses, says this. How are we to labor? Let's stop right there. Who is the we in the text? Who is Yeshua talking to? Talk to unbelieving Jews, right? And he's, they're, they're messed up. They're, they're unbelievers. He said, you're working for the wrong thing. Okay? And so Ryle says, how are we to labor? Who's the we? Who's his we? I think his we is a different we than the text. Because notice what he says. There's but one answer. We must labor in the use of all appointed means. We must read our Bibles. So if you're an unbeliever, read your Bible like men digging for hidden treasure. We must wrestle earnestly in prayer like men contending with a deadly enemy for life. If he's talking about the Christian life, I would go along with this, but Yeshua is talking to unbelievers. We must take our whole heart to the house of God and worship. Unbelievers are going to worship God? No, because the only way you can worship God is in spirit and in truth. That is only through Christ. That's the only way you can worship. And here, like those who listen to the reading of a benefactor's will, we must fight daily against sin. How... (laughs) How much chance does an unbeliever have of fighting against sin? Not much, okay? The world, the devil, and those who fight for liberty, as those who fight for liberty, and we must conquer or be slaves. These are the ways we must walk if we would find Christ. That sounds like he's talking about finding the gospel, finding Christ. I, I'm this just I read this text and I'm thinking, I know this man's smart. But maybe I'm missing something here, but you're writing to these people and you're telling them they have to do this. They, dude, this is how you're going to walk if you want to find Christ. So basically, you get the interpretation. If people label hard, if they work hard enough, read your Bible enough, pray hard enough, worship hard enough, you'll find Christ. Notice carefully what Christ says they are to seek. He says, for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will what? Give you. We're going to work for a gift. That confuses a lot of people, all right? What they're to seek for, and the word work's not used twice here. Some texts have it twice. It's not in twice. Do not work for food that perishes. Stop spending your labors on what perishes. But here's what you need to seek. Seek that food which endures to eternal life, which the Son will give you. This is not about labor. This is about a gift. Yeshua is saying the food which He offers is food which He gives. It's not food which men work for. And only Christ can give food that satisfies eternally, that sustains the spiritual hunger and gives life. You know, what he's talking about here, I think, is very similar to what Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. That makes sense, right? If you're thirsty, guess what? Go to the waters, right? Now watch this. You who have no money, come buy and eat. You get that? You got no money. How do you buy anything? How do you buy and eat if you don't have money? Come buy wine and milk, again, without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? Again, he's talking on the physical. You do all your stuff for physical and your wages for that which does not satisfy. For what does it say? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Listen, buying something without money and without price 
is to come and receive it as a gift. Buying without money is a picture of grace. You don't need money. We don't labor because Christ gives everything we need. You know, seeking to be right with God by works rather than faith alone is probably the most common error in the spiritual world. It's the most common error. Everybody thinks, I've got to do something. All false religions, including those who call themselves Christians, teach a works approach to salvation. They may teach, yes, you're saved by faith, but not a faith that's alone. It's a faith that works. But if that's true, then we have grounds for boasting. Because guess what I did? Yes, I believe, but I also did this stuff, okay? And the question is, always is this, if you add works to salvation anywhere, beginning, end, in the middle, if you add, you have to do this, my question is always this, how many works do I have to do to be saved? That's an important question, people. I've never found anybody ever able to answer that question for me. Because when I ever hear somebody talk about work salvation, I go, okay, I love it, I love it. You know, I don't, but I'm trying to psych him up, okay? I like what you're teaching here. How many works do I have to do? And how will I know when I got to a point where I crossed it? I don't want to do extra stuff, okay? I'm not into extracurricular, you know? I just want to get in, okay? So how many? And no one can answer that. So if works are involved, but if see it's faith, I said the moment you believe, you got everything you need. It's all about faith. And guess what? That honors God because it puts Him, you know? So He says, don't work for the food. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. Well, what food endures to eternal life? It's Christ. He's talking about Himself. We get to verse 35 next week. He's going to say, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread. I'm what satisfies you eternally. Now the term here, son of man, this is Yeshua's favorite self-designation. He used this title for himself ten times in this gospel. In John 1.51, he associates the Son of Man with the messengers going up and coming down from heaven. He uses this title, Son of Man, to remind his listeners of the passage in Daniel 7, that's where it comes from, verse 13, that speaks of the glorious figure who is to receive from God the eschatological kingdom and eternal rule. This is the figure that Daniel talked about. This is the Son of Man. And he says, For on Him the Father God has set His seal. Now the Greek word for seal here is sphagizo, and it means to stamp, like with a signet ring or a private mark. And it's used for security or preservation. Oh, this is marked with a seal. It was used of a baker's mark, which was the assurance of the, that the bread was sealed by the baker who made it, just as the bread of Christ, Christ who is the bread of life, is sealed by the Father. The Father had authorized the Son to act. It was an authorization. I've got this seal. I'm authorized by the person who gives you the seal. That was one of the functions of a seal in Yeshua's culture. Now, the verb seal was used early in the history of the church to describe both baptism and the work of the Spirit. And so many see this clause referring to the commissioning of Yeshua at His baptism when the Spirit came out of heaven and the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I will preach. Please, I don't really have a problem with that. I think, you know, the, the idea of the seal, and we learn later in Ephesians, this, you know, God has sealed His people with the Spirit. So this seal might just be the Spirit coming upon Christ, operating through Him, through His earthly ministry. But the Father has set His seal. He set His approval. He set His authority on Christ. He says, therefore, they said to Him... So, Okay, they're asking him another question then. So he's telling them this stuff, you know, don't work for this parish, just work for the food, you know, labor for the food that brings eternal life, which I'm going to give you. And so they say to him, what shall we do? Do we work the works of God? Now, you know, he's talking about, don't labor for this, seek this. And they're like, okay, what do we do? What are the works of God? Now, the word for do or doing here is, is used three times in this text in the Greek. The literal translation reads like this. What must we be doing to be doing the doings of God, according to the interlinear Greek-English translation. What must we be doing to be doing the doings of God? Alright, that's their question. What do we do? It's a central question that all religions ask. Judaism asked all... What do we do? The religious Jew was assumed to be right with God based on his lineage. He's born a Jew. 
and its performance of the Mosaic Law as interpreted by the oral tradition. So they thought Yeshua was talking about some physical work. And not only that, they assumed that they could do it, whatever it was. Tell us what to do. We'll do it. Okay? We're, we're good at doing stuff. All right? And by doing it, they figured they'd earn eternal life. All right, just tell us what we got to do to earn eternal life. They want to do something. And we see this question all through the New Testament. This is just, I think, the human response, all right? You remember the rich young ruler came to Yeshua and he said, what did he say? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's funny because Yeshua doesn't preach the gospel. He doesn't give him the gospel. He says, you know the law, right? You know what the law says, right? Go do it. Oh, and the guy says, I've done all those for my youth. In other words, I'm not a sinner. I've never sinned. You know, that's what he's saying. You know, if he's thinking he's kept the law, the purpose of the law was to reveal sin, and he didn't get it, so that was it. Yeshua stopped. Didn't go on. You remember what the Jews said when Peter preached the Sermon on Pentecost? They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? We need to do something now. The Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? And today that question is asked, by almost everybody, and the sad thing is, the church is responding to that question with baptism, repentance, live a holy life. But there's only one correct answer to that question. What must I do? And Yeshua says, believe. That's the answer. That's the only right answer. And there's no added, nothing added to that. There's no buts, there's no appendages. It's just, you need to believe. Now let's look at this verse. He says, this is the work of God. Now, a lot of debate over here what the work of God is. It's either that which God desires from mankind, or it's that which God accomplishes for mankind. And in this gospel, I think it's likely both. I think he's using both references as he does often. Lang offers these interpretations. He said, number one, the works of God, the works that God requires. In other words, what's the work of God? Well, that's what God requires. In other words, His commandments. But He also says, number two, it's the works which God produces. And it's interesting because He uses the singular here. Work. Not works. you got to do this and that and that. The work of God. It's singular. And the work of God is trusting in Christ. That's it. Alright? This is the work of God. God's work is that you believe. Now, the significance of the modifying phrase here, of God indicate that the work of faith is not from our effort, but it's a gracious gift of God enabling us to trust in Christ. That faith is to be in the one, he says, whom God has sent. In other words, who's the one God has sent? That's him. He's claiming that over and over. I'm the one God sent. So your faith has to be in me. You have to believe in me. The work of God, people, is that you believe in me. That's what he's saying. Believe in me. Now, to show that faith itself is not a work, because this is the greatest error of the church. I mean, you go to ask, you know, this is so easy to prove. Go to someone you know is a believer, says they're a believer, and say, if you were to die right now and you stood before God in heaven and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What do they say? Well, I did and I did, and I, you, most people are going to go on their list. Take that list and tear it up. Because if you don't say, because of the Lord Yeshua's death on my behalf on Calvary, that's it. That's the only answer. Okay, You're either trusting Christ or you're not getting there. And this is all through the Scripture. Look what Paul said. This is kind of clear here, I think. Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work, but, but believes. So you don't work, but you believe. You don't have to do anything. You just have to trust. The one who doesn't work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteous, salvation people is all about faith, works play no part in it. And anybody that's adding works to faith is destroying faith. Because the gospel is faith alone. Sola fide was the cry of the reformers. It's faith alone. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in Him. As I just said, this can mean the works that God produces... And the works that God produces is faith in His Son. They're saying, what, what must we do to make works the works of God? And He goes, this is what God does 
He makes it so you believe. can't be translated that way. Faith is not a work we do. It's something that God produces in us. Listen, we believe. No question there. But only because He has given us eternal life. And see, the church has this backwards today. They say, if you will believe, God will give you life. Okay, well, here's the problem. If I need life, that means I'm dead. And as a dead man, I have a trouble doing anything. Okay? Most dead people can't do much. Alright? Most. Alright? <laughs> Unless you're mostly dead, which means you're somewhat alive. And that's how most people see this, I think. You know? Seen the movie Princess Bride? He's not dead. He's mostly dead. That means he's somewhat alive. That's how they see this. You're somewhat alive because somewhere in there you make this choice. And then because you make the choice, God says, wow, they made, they chose me. I'm so happy. I'm going to give them life. No, you're a dead man and God comes along and says, here's life in my son. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I believe in that son. Why? Because you've been given eternal life. Look what he says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved. By God's grace. Through faith. And that, not of yourself, it's a work of God. It's a gift of God. Through faith. Faith's not from yourself. Faith is a gift. The antecedent of it is the gift of God is faith. God gives you the faith. You're saved by grace through the instrumentality of faith. He's talking about that's our instrumentality. That's how we receive the salvation. But the biblical ordo salutis that David talked about this morning is that in Yahweh, His grace gives life. And then we hear and respond to the Gospel because we are alive. It's all about God. Look at 1 John 5.1. You know, people are always asking, they're always, you know, examining fruit, so to speak. We're fruit inspectors. You know, we're, we're checking everybody to make sure they're what they should be. Okay? What is the evidence that a man has eternal life? Well, biblically, the evidence is faith. But everyone would say, well, you have to do this, this. If you do this, you know, then we know you have life. But look what the Scriptures say. Everyone... I'm using the ESV here because the ESV makes it clear. It uses the proper tense. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, anybody and everyone who believes that, watch, has been born of God. See, the reason they believe is because God has given them life. Past tense, they have the life, so faith is the evidence that you've been given new life. Now you can believe. Luther said this. You guys know who Luther is, right? You heard of him? Guy back in the olden days. Not Martin Luther King, okay. Just Martin Luther. Alright? He said this. It's not in your power to turn to God. If you think that it's in your power to turn to God, you miss the whole point of the Reformation. And you don't understand total depravity. Alright? It is not in your power to turn to God. You're a sinner. You're dead. You get that? Dead people don't do much, okay? You're eaten up with corruption. Every choice of yours is evil and not good. So how can we turn to Him who is light, righteousness, holy, and good? That's Luther. We believe. That's our response. God doesn't believe. We believe. But that response is something created in us by God. By grace, we're saved through the instrumentality of faith. Now, this discourse causes the crowd to ask another question. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign? So that we may see and believe you. Remember, he just they're saying, What are God's works? What do we got to do? And he says, This is the work. Believe in me. And so they say, Well, then show us a sign and we'll believe in you. Do something. Do a trick. Do us a sign. We want, we want to believe in you, but we've got to see something. In other words, show us a sign to prove you're God's authorized representative. Their unwillingness to believe the sign that Yeshua had already given them the previous day shows their hardness of their heart. You ju- I just fed 20,000. These are the people who came from over there. They saw those miracles. They saw Him spend a whole day healing people. They saw Him feeding those people. And they're saying, do a sign for us. I think it's better to see this as a dare or a challenge than a request. They're daring him. They're challenging him. And the next verse, I think, makes this clear. In 31, he says, they say, our fathers ate man in the wilderness. They're connecting the food that Yeshua created with their father Moses and the stuff in the wilderness. As it said, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. 
So they're referring to the man in the wilderness. They cite Scripture. And the crowd dares, Yeshua, can you beat Moses? Huh? The challenge was, you got to top Moses. See, the man Judaism saw as their very founder in faith, if Yeshua would call them to trust Him, He has to outperform Moses. You know, Moses is the father of our faith. We're trusting Moses. We're following Moses. And Moses fed us in the wilderness. You gotta, you're gonna have, if you're the representative, you gotta do better than Moses. Okay? You gotta do better. So this challenge is clearly laid out in terms of Judaism versus Christianity. You're telling us to follow you? Well, you gotta do something better than Moses. But it's also a challenge to bring in the Messianic age to prove himself as Messiah. The Jewish expectation of that time, alright, the people who were there with Christ, they believed that when the Messiah would come, he would renew the gift of manna. Now see, that's a detail we gotta have in our heads when we look at this, alright? Well, where do we learn that from? Well, we learned it from the pseudepigraphal works, alright? Barak says this, the treasure of manna shall again descend from on high, and they will eat of it in those years. So they felt when the Messiah showed up, he'll do this again. He'll provide manna again. In the Midrash of Ecclesiastes 1.9, it says, The first Redeemer caused manna to descend. So will the later Redeemer cause manna to descend. I know, I know. There's some people out there thinking, that's pseudepigraphal, that's not Scripture. Listen to me, people. We've gone through this so many times. I hope you're starting to get it. Okay? I'm not saying this is Scripture. But what I am saying, this is simple, Second Temple literature. This is something everybody in the time period of Yeshua was familiar with this literature. They had read this literature. They knew what this literature said. So in the head of those Jews, they're thinking when Messiah comes, He's going to bring manna again. That's why this writing, these writings are so important. It helps us know what they thought. Because Yeshua is dealing with what they thought. And they thought Messiah is going to show up, He's going to produce. This is all involved in this. They knew that in the wilderness, Moses gave God's manna every day. They didn't have, you know, that's great, Yeshua, that you fed a bunch of people one day. But Moses did it for 40 years and he fed millions. Top that one, okay? I mean, Yeshua only fed 20,000. That's a small group, right? Compared to millions. And he does it every day for 40 years. So Yeshua, he says, if you want us to believe in you, <laughs> you're going to have to up to Annie. All right? We got to see you top Moses. That's what they're saying. It says here, as it is written, this is a periphrastique, perfect passive participle. This is the standard grammatical form to introduce scriptural quotes. As it is written, they're quoting a scripture. It's an idiom affirming the inspiration and authority of the Tanakh. So they quote a scripture because that backs up everything they say. You know, you just throw a scripture out there. The people were viewing Moses as the source of their blessing in the past. They believed that the manna was given through the merits of Moses. And so they're basically saying, you gave us one meal. Moses fed millions for 40 years. You've got to beat this if you're the Messiah. If you're the new Moses, the new Redeemer, you got to do this. Now, the exact quotation here is disputed. It's most likely Psalm 78.24, which in the Septuagint would be Psalm 77.24. But the Greek also has echoes of Nehemiah 9.15, Exodus 16.4, Psalm 105.40. And I think perhaps Lazarus is loosely alluding to all these passages. Here's what you got to understand. When the rabbis and the Greek, the Jews quoted things, they would pull a lot of different scriptures together and boom, give you a quote. They didn't just, we stick with this verse, we can't use any other. No, they pull a bunch of them. Because they knew the scripture so well, they would get what's going on. Okay, you're putting these together to prove a point. We get it. We get what you're saying. Verse 32, Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. It's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. The crowd said, He gave them bread out of heaven. Yeshua responded, Well, you're interpreting it wrong. Okay? Don't interpret He as Moses, but He is the Father. And don't read gave, past tense, but read gives, because He's doing it right now. So suddenly the Scripture citation that the crowd's using is turned to point to Yeshua. 
And this radically revives interpretation of Scripture is characteristic of the conflict between Judaism and Christianity in the first century. Both these groups appealed to the same Scripture, but they saw them totally differently. Because their views were tainted in what they saw. So we have to understand. And listen, when the New Testament quotes the Old, it quotes it correctly. You can understand. These writers are not making up something new. They understand what they're doing. They're doing it under inspiration. Then the Lord said to Moses. Now we're talking about manna here. It's the Lord tells Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. So Moses wasn't providing bread. Okay? The Lord was providing bread. And that's what he's telling them. Listen, Moses didn't give that for you to you. All right? The manna was Yahweh's provision, not Moses'. Verse 33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. He was giving them a new type of bread right now. That's what he's trying to get them to see. He used the feeding to get their mind on the bread. He goes into this bread of life discourse here. He described it as coming down out of heaven and providing life for the entire world. With this response, Yeshua effectively took Moses as his sign, which the people put in a superior place over him, and he places Moses under him. And he says, I'm superior to Moses. In this context, Yeshua's descent is stated seven times. Seven times in chapter 6, he talks about his coming down out of heaven. It shows his pre-existent divine origin. It's also a play on the manna which came from heaven as did Yeshua, the true bread, the bread of life. He gives life to the world. Now this has to be understood in light of the context, as every scripture does. He's been talking about Moses. He's been talking about the children of Israel. And he's telling them that the life that he has is not simply for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles as well. He gives life to the world. Now this doesn't mean every single person in the world. He's not talking about universal atonement here. If this were true, that He gives life to everybody in the world, everybody would be saved, but everybody's not. He doesn't mean everybody without exception. He means everybody without distinction. Jew and Gentile. Remember, the Jews thought it was only for them. Anybody can receive the gift through the Lord Yeshua the Christ. So He gives life to the world. It's beyond you, Jews. He's coming down to provide life for all who will trust in Him. And they still don't get it. They said, always give us this bread. (laughs) They're still thinking of the physical bread. That's what they're thinking about. They wanted some new type of bread that didn't spoil. Even the manna spoiled. Remember that? They had to get it. If they got too much, if they kept the next day, it was all rotten. All right? So it spoiled. So he's talking about a bread that lasts to eternal. Eternal bread, we can get it. We can store it forever. You know, be like wonder bread, which isn't. Okay? It lasts forever because there's nothing real in it to corrode or rot. Okay? Well, Yeshua responds to them. When they, when they say this, give us this bread. And again, this is just like the woman at the well. Oh, give me this water so I don't have to come back to this well anymore. They're saying, give us this bread so we don't have to look, run it all over trying to feed ourselves. We'll take it. And then Yeshua responds to this by saying, I am the bread of life. It's me. Now, they're not going to like this answer, and we're going to pick this up next week here and go on from here because he's saying, I'm, I'm talking about me. I'm the bread. I'm the one that satisfies. I'm the only one eternally satisfied. All right, so let me wrap this up. In this text, we see the Lord. He's dealing with His own people. That's what He said in chapter 1. He came into His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, then gave you the power to become children of God. Right? They, didn't, they didn't believe in Him. The Jews didn't want to accept Him. These are the people who had the very Scriptures that talked about Him. And they just don't get it. No matter what He does, they don't get it. Why is that? Well, as Yeshua is going to clearly lay out as we go on in this chapter, they don't get it because they're dead. They're dead. And Yeshua is going to say, hey, don't grumble among yourselves. You can't come unless God draws you. You know, you're arguing about, oh, we don't get it. What's He saying? Ah, don't worry, you don't get it because you're not chosen. And until Yahweh gives you life, you never will get it. And that's, this is the whole theme that we have to get here. He's trying to tell them salvation is of the Lord. From beginning to end, it's all about His doing. It's a work of God. If you're a believer, it's because you were chosen by God and given life. Because all of His elect are given faith and they're given eternal life 
and man plays no part in salvation. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians that no flesh may glory in His presence. If you did something to make God accept you, then when you get to heaven, you can glory in His presence. And that's not going to be tolerated, people. All right? He does it all out of His love for us. This is next week, people. Read ahead, okay? Read these verses. Over and over, He says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. What? Who comes to Him? The ones given of the Father. And we'll talk about what that means next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the clarity of Your Word. I thank You, Lord, that we can rejoice in the fact that if we have trusted You, we have because You have given us a new birth. You have given us eternal life and we are Your children. We rest in that promise, Father. We thank You for the security of our salvation. I thank You, Lord, that salvation is all of You because if I had any part in it, I would mess it up. Thank You for Your grace, Lord. May we trust in it day and night. Amen.